coming up on Garden Talk. There's kind of this mindset that we're trying to replicate what the roots are actually, like what's actually happening in the soil. And that's sort of impossible because the system is so complex and there's so many physical and chemical and biological variables that are interplaying together that you can't actually see what's happening. And the biggest issue I see here is there's this elevated magnesium at 149, and that's really going to prevent the uptake of calcium and potassium. I would rather have that around like 35 parts per million. If your plants are uptaking those amino acids, it's saving a bunch of energy that they can put toward shoot growth or flower development or root growth or any number of metabolic activities. But ultimately, if I had a magic wand, I would reduce your nitrogen magnesium. I might push up your soluble phosphorus a little bit and your iron. And from there, things would really just fly. What's up, everybody? If you that don't know me, my name is Chris, a.k.a. Mr. Grow It, and you're tuned into the Garden Dog Podcast. This is episode number 26. In this episode, I interview Bryant Mason. Some of you may know him as the Soil Doctor. He is a certified crop advisor and has been in the business of soil and crop health for over eight years. In this episode, we talk all about soil testing. He takes a look at a soil test that I got and gives advice on optimal levels and balancing. He also talks a little bit about nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, amino acids, and heavy metals. Big thanks to all of you that support this podcast through Patreon. If you'd like to support, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash mrgrowit. Before we get into the episode, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsors. AC Infinity is a sponsor of the podcast. Coupon code MrGrowIt will get you a discount on their products. I've been using their Cloudline T6 and T4 inline fans for several years now, and I absolutely love the automation built into them. On the inline fans controller, you can have set points for high and low temperature, as well as high and low humidity. This greatly helps control my indoor garden environment, so the temperature and humidity stays in the ideal ranges. I will leave a link to AC Infinity down in the description section below, and don't forget to use coupon code MrGrowIt for a discount on their products. A big supporter of this podcast is Dutch Pro. They sponsor this podcast and I use their nutrients. I have been using their base nutrients formulated specifically for RO and soft water. I also have been using some of their additives like CalMag, Silica, and their root stimulator called Take Root. They have a few other additives on top of those and pH regulators. Coupon code MrGrowIt10DP will get you a discount on their products. And I'll leave a link to their Amazon store down in the description section below. Big shout out to Spider Farmer for sponsoring this podcast. Spider Farmer is well known to produce high quality LED grow lights at a price lower than nearly all other companies. They have board style LED grow lights as well as bar style LED grow lights. I've used their SF1000, SF2000, and SF4000 LED grow lights in the past and I got some excellent results with them. They also have grow tents, inline fans, and carbon filters. I will leave a link to Spider Farmer down in the description section below, and you can use discount code MrGrowIt5 during checkout for a discount on their products. Okay, now let's get into the episode. All right, we are back. Garden Talk Podcast. I am here today with Bryant Mason, aka The Soil Doctor. How's it going today? Going well. Cool. Oh, thanks for joining me today. I've actually seen you on a couple different shows. I saw you on one with uh, Brandon Russ talking about sequestering nutrients. I thought that was super, super interesting. I also listened to you on Tad Hussey's podcast. Uh, you did a great episode with him. Uh, and you get real deep into things. And once I heard those two, 
uh, I really wanted to get you on the show, and I'm super thankful to have you on here today. Um, in this episode today, what we're going to go over is we're going to talk all about soil testing. So uh, my audience is, uh, say, mostly beginners slash intermediate home growers. I'd like to say a large majority are home growers. Of course, there are some people out there that do outdoors, and they uh, are commercial facilities and so on and so forth. But I would say indoors mostly. And uh, so we'll talk all about soil tests today, um, an introduction to it. Uh, also, I have a soil test that I got from Logan Labs. I got a soil report and also a uh, saturated paste test. So we'll go over some of the results uh, in this podcast today. Uh, and then if we have time, we can get into some of the nutrients uh, and what you know about them, uh, particularly like macronutrients, maybe like the NPK type stuff. So I'm excited for this one. Usually when we start off the podcast, we talk about introductions. So can you give us a little introduction about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got into gardening. Yeah. So uh, I live in Colorado and I am a soil and crop advisor through the American Association of Agronomy. And so what that means is I help farmers in various aspects of their operations. But unlike other crop consultants, I specifically focus on nutrient management in organic systems. So um, I do help, you know, answer questions for, for growers about cover cropping and different farm practices, but, but I really, really focus on nutrient management. And I do that through extensive soil testing, tissue testing, plant sap analysis. So all kinds of different laboratory techniques to really hone in on the nutrient bottlenecks that are pre preventing greater yield or photosynthesis or quality in crops. On a garden level, I actually, before I was a consultant, um, I started a, a business in Colorado called the Urban Farm Company, and we installed um, raised bed organic vegetable gardens for homeowners and taught people how to grow their own food in their backyard. And I, I built that business for about five years before selling it, um, but we installed probably two or 3,000 vegetable gardens across the front range of Colorado, and that enabled me to see really um, it's sort of a hyper- data set of gardens in different environments in different backyards with different crops and crop types and soil types. And so in a sense, we were able to observe um, very quickly what was working and what wasn't. And I learned a tremendous amount um, about gardening, specifically in the high desert in the arid west. Um, and I was, I've been able to translate that into um, more technical and data driven uh, soil chemistry and fertility recommendations. So um, I work with all kinds of, of crops. Um, I have been working more and more in soilless media and potting soils um, in indoor environments, but I also work with uh, small organic veggie producers, uh, tree fruit, and I'm actually currently starting a, a peach orchard in Western Colorado. So I have a, my hands in a lot of different agricultural enterprises and I get to see things from a lot of different angles. So um, that's, that's just in a nutshell kind of my background. Awesome. Now let's get into talking about soil testing and the soil audits that you do. Uh, first off, what is soil testing and why should growers get them? Yeah, so a soil test is essentially uh, when you take a sample, an aggregate sample from your garden. So you choose multiple locations uh, around your garden and you mix it all together into an aggregate sample and you send it to a laboratory. And there's, there's university laboratories, there's third-party private labs, and the labs use different uh, data, um, or I'm sorry, extraction techniques 
and they extract the nutrients from the soil and give you a, a chemical nutrient analysis of what is in your soil because um, all soils are different. You can actually see this map behind me. There's a map of the United States that shows all the different soil orders. And you can just see there's just tremendous variability and diversity in soil. So it's really important to, to, to test your soil to understand what you're starting with. Some soils have really, really high magnesium. Some have really low magnesium. Um, and you can go nutrient by nutrient and, and there's infinite iterations. So um, the reason a soil test is important is because there are, are you know, somewhat of gardening prescriptions that exist on the internet at like feed your tomatoes Epsom salt. But that only works in one specific soil type or one specific context. Sometimes there's enough magnesium and, and you don't need Epsom salt. So the best way to, to apply nutrients is to first figure out what's actually in your soil and that's the purpose of a soil test. Um, and to go a little deeper, what the lab does is there's a number of different kinds of soil tests. There's and, and usually they're specific to different parts of the country. So they use um, different acids and they mix the soil with an acidic solution that extracts the nutrients. So, um, you know, I like a, a soil test called a malic three and they use a, an acid with a pH of 2.5 to extract all the nutrients. Um, and I also like what's called a saturated paste test, which just uses water to extract the nutrients. So I can go into that more if you'd like, but the point is there's a lot of different kinds of soil tests and um, there's a lot of nuance. So what's important is to choose a lab and choose a specific soil test and not change because all labs and all protocols and soil tests are different. So it's important to stick with one over time and really calibrate to one specific kind of test. Gotcha. I know one of the most popular uh, testing facilities is Logan Labs. Uh, and that's the one I went through for my soil report uh, that I have in the saturated paste test. Now, you can either go through a lab or like on Amazon, you can buy the home test kits. So are they worth it? I've seen some video where this guy did a test on the home test kits and he compared it to it. And I think he had a couple different home test kits. And one was like extremely inaccurate and one of them was like pretty pretty on point to what he saw got from back from the lab. So, you know, in your opinion, are home soil tests worth it or is it really kind of a waste of money? You know, I I fall in the latter camp where I think it's a waste of money. Now, let me let me explain why. There's essentially two reasons. The first is that they're not very accurate compared to what a commercial laboratory would use. They use um, equipment like a, um, an inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer. It's a big name for a, a piece of equipment that costs about $200,000 and is extremely accurate in identifying each and every macro and micronutrient down to the part per million. So. The garden kits are not accurate. Usually it's a, it's a color metric type of thing where you're matching the color um, to a certain chart that tells you the, the level. Now that's not my biggest issue with it actually because um, precision, you know, super, super accurate data isn't necessarily the goal. The goal of a soil test is just to give you direction in terms of what you should be applying and what you shouldn't. So the accuracy thing, while it is... Um, surely a problem isn't the reason I think these tests are a waste of money. The real reason is that if you use one of these kits, usually there's not a good um, standard or target level that you'd be familiar with using these kits. It may say high, low, or medium, but the reality is um, you really need to see 
data over and over again. Like I've probably seen five or 10,000 tests from Logan Labs. So I've, I've, I'm hyper calibrated to Logan Labs uh, test reports. If I were to change labs, whether it's a home test kit or another commercial lab, the data would, would essentially be uh, unhelpful. And so the biggest issue for me around these home test kits is that they, they don't really give you a good quality baseline. I don't think high, low, and medium is actually uh, a very good approach to managing soil. And so um, it's better to either have a consultant or an agronomist, even if it's with the commercial lab, doing the interpretation um, because there's a lot of nuance in interpreting a soil test. So that's sort of my, my um, two cents on that. I've, I'll also mention that I've used home test kits where I've taken the same soil and I've tested it twice and the results were different between the two, the two tests. So that, that didn't really give me much confidence. Wow. Yeah. And like you said, there's a difference between getting a soil test and seeing the results and then knowing what actions to take after the fact, right? Or, or, or getting yeah. consulting. Um, and that's where soil audit comes into place. Can you tell us, tell us about soil audit? Yeah, sure. And let me add one thing to the last question. A, P, a pH, a home pH uh, test, I think is pretty good. Um, if you're trying to figure out if your pH is five or eight, I think it's it's totally worth it to do a simple pH test with litmus paper, whatever whatever the the test is. Those tend to be accurate enough to actually get a sense of if you should be increasing your pH or not. Um, I also just want to add that when it comes to soil testing, there's there's kind of this this mindset that we're trying to replicate what the roots are actually like, what's actually happening in the soil, and that's sort of impossible because the system is so complex. And there's so many uh, physical and chemical and biological variables that are interplaying together that you can't actually see what's happening. But these soil tests are just a proxy to give us sort of a, a sense of, of what's happening. So anyway, the, the, the purpose of me saying that is there isn't, I'm not here to promote one specific soil test. I think what's key is to get comfortable with one as a proxy and be able to relate that to plant health and stick with that. So to get into the soil audit, uh, what I do, I, I probably do 20 to 30 of these a day. It's my primary role as a consultant is growers send their soil to Logan Labs and they get two separate soil tests on the same soil. One is the Malik 3, which I already talked about. It's called a standard test. And the other is a saturated paste test. And so the Malik 3 is a strong acid extraction. It looks at what's theoretically available in the soil. So all the nutrients, kind of like the bank account of nutrients. And the PACE test is on the other end of the spectrum and it's showing what's immediately available today. So not all the theoretically available nutrients, just what's soluble in the soil solution. And the soil solution is a term for the water in the pore space of the soil uh, that plants roots have access to right now. They, that's, it's the water that's actually uptaken by the roots. So the PACE test is a really, really good test to see what's what the plant roots are actually swimming in. And so I look at both of these tests from Logan Labs and I do a whole bunch of agronomic math and write recommendations for growers on how to amend their soil. So it may be, and most of the time this is a pre-plant recommendation. So before the season or before they um, put in their new round of indoor plants, uh, they send me the soil tests and I write a recommendation of how many 
pounds per cubic yard of soil they should apply of, let's say, alfalfa meal or gypsum or a micronutrient like manganese sulfate. And I go nutrient by nutrient and I write customized recommendations. And the goal that I, the approach that I take is the first thing I'm trying to do is achieve sufficiency. So I'm trying to make sure there's enough of every nutrient in the soil for the plants to be healthy. And this varies by species. So, um, you know, a recommendation for lettuce is going to look different than for tomatoes in the same soil. And then this, and then the second thing I'm aiming for is balance. So it's very important to have balance between the different nutrients in the soil. So, um, you know, there needs to be enough calcium and there needs to be enough magnesium, but there also needs to be a good balance between those two nutrients to optimize the nutrient uptake by the plant. And so the recommendations or the audit that I do is giving people more information about what their soil looks like and the chemistry of their soil, but there's also a very actionable recommendation of how to amend their soil to move it closer to sufficiency and balance. And that's really a soil audit. They're $40 per test. Um, and usually I can turn them around within 24 hours of receiving the soil test results. Um, and then growers can actually take it and implement it immediately. And the beauty of, of the, my business is I, I get to see over time how the nutrient levels in the soil change. And so I've really calibrated um, very, very accurately to hit specific PPMs in the soil using organic amendments. Um, and I've optimized it for a number of different crops. So I have a model at this point that gets pretty, pretty close um, in pre-plant amendments. Okay. And just to touch back on the pricing, you had mentioned $40 for it. Is that just for the audit or does that also include the testing through Logan Labs? It's just the audit. So the $40 goes to me and that's for the recommendation. Okay. The soil test through Logan Labs cost $55 for both the standard and the saturated paste test. And um, that can, the growers can either purchase that directly through Logan Labs or they can go through my website and purchase it as a, a package um, with the soil test and the, and the audit. So it doesn't really matter to me, um, but that's kind of how the pricing works. I feel like for home growers, you know, if you're reusing your soil and over and over again, maybe what do you think? Like once a year, maybe get their soil tested or in between grows or, or what is the general recommendation for that? So it, yeah, it really depends on the economic value of the crop. So commercial growers I work with who are growing really high value medicinal plants are testing every two weeks because um, any increase in yield pays for itself a hundredfold. Because the tests, you know, 100 bucks every two weeks for nutrient management is nothing compared to the yield that they're getting. If you're a home gardener, and um, it depends on how serious you are, if you're an enthusiast, um, if you're kind of a hobbyist, once a year is the minimum. I would say every time you plant, every time you're you're replanting, you should you should test. So in my garden, in my vegetable garden, I test once a year. I put down the amendments and I let things rip. Um, when I'm really trying to optimize specific plants, my medicinal garden plants, I'm testing usually once before planting and then once in veg immediately before flower to really give myself the opportunity to top dress or just see where things are to adjust my feed, uh, my liquid feeds. So that's kind of the minimum amount. The other thing I'd mention is I recommend that if you're going to test mid-season, you also do a tissue test. And a tissue test um, is where you take, you know, leaves off of your plant. Um, you send it in. Again, Logan Labs says tissue test for $40 a pop. Um, and you can actually see the nutrient concentration in 
the, the plants because what I like to say is the plant doesn't lie. So just because you can have a, you can have a perfectly you know, sufficient and balanced soil, but at the end of the day, the plant is going to decide um, what it uptakes. And so to have a soil test alongside a tissue test is really the best thing to do. So for a, a home grower, I think what I would recommend if you're really an enthusiast is to do one soil test before planting and then one soil test right around that time when the plant is transitioning from a vegetative state to a reproductive state with a tissue test. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Now let's get into the soil test that I got. So um, I sent it over to you prior to uh, filming today. There is just the, the regular test and then also the saturated paste test. So we won't go over every single line item there, but maybe just take a look at it and kind of what stands out to you and kind of general recommendations, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So let me walk through how I would how I would look at a test. Okay, so the first thing I, I'm looking at is the standard soil test, which is in blue and gray. Um, when you, it, you when it's received from Logan Labs, the saturated paste test is kind of in a pink orange color. So first thing I look at on the standard test is about the sixth line down. It says organic matter percent, and that gives me an indication of if it's topsoil. So you know, real soil that has sand, silt, and clay or if it's soilless media or potting mix that's primarily composed of peat moss, cocoa core, aggregate, and compost. So the first thing I see here is that the organic matter is 57%, so that indicates to me that it's a soilless media, so it's more of an of a, um, engineered media. And this is typically used for high-value crops in, indoors or in, in raised beds or in pots. Um, you, you really only want to use soilless media in pots. You don't want to use uh, topsoil. So... I, I first determine if it's topsoil or soilless media, and that, that totally changes how I analyze things. Um, it completely changes the analysis. So I'll, I'll walk through how I do soilless media. Next thing I look at is the pH, the pH of 6.6. .6. Um, I think anywhere from like 6.0 to 7.2 is a great range for soilless media. Um, plants tend to do just fine in the high fives, but um, you start to see issues with calcium uptake below six and micronutrient uh, issues that really appear visually below about 5.5, but it kind of depends. Um, so 6.6 .6 is perfect. I, I think 6.4 to 6.6 is really optimal. Um, actually, I'd say 6.4 to, to like 6.8. And okay, so the next thing I look at, I skip sulfur and I look to the, it says malic 3 phosphorus and it's reported in, in, pounds per acre of P205. Um, I like that around about 1500, but it really depends too on how well that phosphorus is, is um, becoming available in the soil solution. So I pop over to the paste test. And so I'm going to be jumping between the paste test and the standard test. And I see that the phosphorus on the saturated paste report is 2.88 ppm. So I think that's a great level. So I don't think you necessarily need to have more phosphorus. I might apply maybe five cups of bone meal or soft rock phosphate just to keep moving that phosphorus number up. But ultimately, biology is going to cycle that phosphorus into availability and, and create good availability right around three ppm. So I'm happy with that. So um, I keep working down. I skip on the standard test. I skip the exchangeable cations, calcium, mag, and potassium. I would not skip those on a topsoil, but for soilless media, I, I much prefer to look at the saturated paste report. Um, and the reason for that is because 
soilless media doesn't actually have any clay in it. And clay is what, when you're looking at um, the cation balance, in the, these, the Malik 3 is developed for topsoil where clay is holding different cations. With an, it's, clay has a, a slight negative charge, and so it holds these positively charged cations. Um, but because soilless media doesn't have that, I'd rather just see what's immediately available um, in the soil solution. So I pop over to the PACE test and I look at calcium, mag, potassium, and sodium. Calcium's at 170 parts per million. Um, that's very sufficient, pretty good level. Um, magnesium is 149, potassium is 230 parts per million, and sodium is 33. Okay, so when I look at that, great calcium levels, great, pretty, pretty high potassium levels, really low sodium, which is great because sodium is not actually a plant nutrient. So you want to minimize, you want to absolutely minimize sodium in your soil because it's going to compete. So all of those four cations are going to compete with one another for plant uptake. So all of those are sufficient. The next thing I mentioned is balance. And it's really important that these are balanced. And the biggest issue I see here is there's this elevated magnesium at 149. And that's really going to prevent the uptake of calcium and potassium. Um, I would rather have that around like 35 parts per million. So that's, it's, it's much higher than I would want it. And that's reflected in that percent magnesium on the, on the paste report, um, a little bit lower, um, in white it's magnesium is 44% of the cations on the paste report. I'd rather have it at about 15 to 20%. So one thing, one little trick is I actually like to have Epsom salt, which is magnesium sulfate on hand. I like to run magnesium levels low. And then if I need, if a certain cultivar needs more magnesium, I like to apply a foliar spray of Epsom salt to just kind of help it along. And that really maximizes the calcium and potassium uptake. Um, so anyway, there's a whole, there's a whole game. There's kind of an art game with balance when it comes to cations. And one of my biggest issues with CalMag is there's too much magnesium. And so you start to see these elevated magnesium levels, which can come from CalMag, dolomitic lime, compost. A lot of composts are high in magnesium. And so a, a major issue, this is very common, um, is high magnesium. Now this isn't going to create toxicity. You probably won't even see it in your plants. You can still have really, really healthy plants. Um, but if you, if you're really trying to maximize and optimize yield and quality. Um, you want to get that magnesium down. I'll take a breather for a second and take a sip of tea. Do you have any questions at this point? Uh, I think just basic question would be like you had mentioned uh, foliar spray for magnesium. What would be like kind of the ratio, the recipe for that? Uh, I say a tablespoon per gallon okay. of Epsom salt. Gotcha. Uh, a table, uh, per gallon of water. You could do, it's like one to three teaspoons. So and, and I think it's forgiving. I've never applied it more than that, but I'm sure you could do two tablespoons with no issue. But I'm all about frequency over intensity. So I would much rather apply three foliar sprays, maybe four days apart, than, than do one massive application. Because the reality is the, the phyloplane, the leaf can't uptake that, that much in one, in one fell swoop. So um, frequency is always better. And then there's some folks that say you need to, you should be spraying at a certain time. Uh, is there a recommendation for, for you on when the spray should happen? Yeah, absolutely. So there are stomata, which are specialized guard cells in a leaf and they open and close, uh, 
and they're critical for photosynthesis because they're exchanging gases, CO2 and oxygen, in and out of the leaf. And it turns out that stomata can actually uptake nutrients as well. So the, the best time to spray is when the stomata are open, and that will maximize the nutrient uptake in the leaf. Most stomata in, uh, in dicots, which are the majority of the, the plants we're growing, are dicots, are on the underside of the leaf. So when you apply your foliar, you kind of want to aim up if possible. Um, and you want to apply it when the stomata are open, which tends to be early in the morning or later at night. Um, really, it's a function of vapor pressure deficit or VPD. So high, you know, when it's, when it's humid and kind of cool, that's when you want to be applying. Um, because in, in the middle of the day, when the VPD is high, the, the stomata close because they're trying to preserve um, water. They don't want to lose too much water uh, in hot, dry environments. So that's, that's definitely what I'd recommend. Most growers do it first thing in the morning um, or, you know, real late at night. Okay, cool. Uh, I also, if you're indoors, I turn my lights down when I do foliar applications. Yeah, I know there were some concerns from people that uh, the the – the light will come down and kind of act as a magnifying lens on those droplets, um, and that could burn your plants or, or whatever. So. Yeah, it depends on the product. Um, yep, yep. But in Epsom salt, probably not. But a lot of the IPM products, for sure. Um, if you're using synthetic, like a calcium chloride, that could really, you know, burn. Um, it just depends on the style of grow and the product being used and the and the rate. Okay, gotcha. Okay, let me keep let me keep walking through this test. I never finished. Um, okay, so that covers the phosphorus and the cations and the pH. Um, the next thing I look at I, on this saturated paste report is the soluble salts. So soluble salts is essentially the same as EC. It's just electrical conductivity. Um, what you'd usually see as an EC of one, um, you multiply that by six forty. So the, the, the soluble salts are, are just an aggregate measurement of all the, the total nutrient load in the soil solution. And this one is um, 1,800 ppm. That's a pretty high level. Uh, most plants, maybe beans and, and more sensitive veggies, wouldn't like those levels. But heavy feeders, um, you know, your medicinal garden plants, tomatoes, even peppers can really handle those high levels and will thrive at those nutrient levels. But I wouldn't want to push my nutrients much higher um, I think the sweet spot is actually um, for, for indoor cultivation right around like 900 to 1200. So right around a thousand, I think is, is all you need. So um, this just gives a sense of how heavily this soil should be fed or um, amended. And in this case, um, there's total sufficiency at these levels and we're really just going for balance. So reducing the, the magnesium, um, maybe reducing the sulfur. So let's jump down to chloride. I like chloride less than 120. Your chloride's at 83, so no problem there. Bicarbonates are 43. Um, bicarbonates really aren't an issue uh, below 100 or 120, um, so there's no issue there. Bicarbonates can can tie up nutrients uh, because it's a it's an anion, so it can it can tie up iron and magnesium um, in alkaline environments. So then I go to sulfur on the PACE test, which is a much better and more accurate measurement than this, the standard test. And it looks like your sulfur is 75 parts per million. I think that's great. I think 40 is the minimum for medicinal plants, 20 for veggies. Um, 
So that's great. And sulfur just comes in naturally through most amendments that are bringing in cations. So gypsum, for example, is calcium sulfate, uh, potassium sulfate, or magnesium sulfate. All these are just naturally bringing in sulfur. And so you usually have elevated sulfur just from the application of gypsum or uh, some, a product like that. Okay, so next I jump down to the micronutrients. We're looking at boron, iron, manganese, copper, and zinc. So I, copper and zinc I always look at on the standard test. So on the standard test, you have um, 0.96, so less than 1 ppm of copper, and 1.7 ppm of zinc. Totally depends on the crop, but I would want to move both of those levels up with a little bit of copper sulfate and zinc sulfate. By the way, all the amendments that I recommend are organic. So um, if a soil test validates that you need micronutrients, you, you can use trace mineral or micronutrient sulfates. Um, Looking at boron, iron, and manganese on the paste report, um, boron at 0.24 is great. Um, iron at 0.17 should probably go up, and manganese at 0.28 is great. So you always want iron to be higher than manganese. Um, so I'd want iron maybe at 0.75 and manganese maybe at 0.4, something like that. So your manganese is actually pretty good, and the biggest priority here is iron. There's two ways to get iron. You can use iron sulfate, or you can use a product like blood meal that's naturally high in iron um, to fulfill your nitrogen requirement and get iron as a secondary nutrient. So let's jump over to nitrogen because nitrogen is the final thing that I would look at and that's on the standard test at the very bottom. Um, in the other category, there's ammonium and nitrate. Those are two different forms of nitrogen. They're two different, um, mo they're mole two different molecular forms of nitrogen. Um, nitrogen is a really interesting nutrient because there's actually multiple forms of nitrogen that the plant can uptake and they're, they act very differently in the plant and in the soil for that matter. So ammonium is NH4 plus, it's a cation, and nitrate is NO3 minus, which is an anion, so it has a negative charge. And in most soils, um, what happens is an organic amendment will go into the soil, so let's just say soybean meal is applied to the soil, and the microbes feed first. So the microbes break it down, mineralize it into ammonium, and then very quickly another set of microbes takes it from ammonium and converts it into nitrate. So what happens is over the course of maybe two weeks in a warm, moist environment, you'll see almost all of your nitri nitrogen in the nitrate form. So sure enough, there's only one ppm of ammonium and 420 of, of nitrate. So that means that your amendments have fully mineralized or broken down, which is a good thing. Um, and nitrate is definitely the preferred uh, form of nitrogen for most crops. Um, unless you're growing rice or something, you really want nitrate, not ammonium. So um, I think, it, and, and nitrogen management is totally context dependent. What I mean by that is if you're growing in pots, it depends on the volume of soil. If you're growing in um, topsoil, it, it, it changes everything. <laughs> Um, because in topsoil, you're also, I also look at how much nitrogen is going to be contribute, contributed by the organic matter breaking down. So the nitrogen calculation may be a little bit too uh, detailed for this podcast. Um, but what I'd say is you'd want, I, I think nitrate is, is good at about 100 parts per million for heavy feeding crops. So you're a bit high. And I would say the combination of your magnesium and your, and your elevated nitrate is what's leading to that slightly elevated soluble salts level. So if you could um, 
the good thing is that in soilless media, after harvest, you could you could leach your soil. You could just run like you know water through your soil until about six to twelve inches of water leaches out the bottom of your pots or your beds or whatever, and that would bring the nitrate down and the magnesium down dramatically, probably cutting it anywhere from like fifty to eighty percent. So the different cultivars of heavy feeding medicinal plants will perform way differently at these nitrogen levels. But for most cultivars in my experience, you'll get uh, your internode spacing will be too, too wide and the, and the flower buds will be a little bit too kind of loose and fluffy when the nitrogen is elevated. You all can also screw up um, the profile of secondary metabolites. So like, you know, terpenes and different aromatic substances can really be decreased at those nitrogen levels. With sensitive plants, like, um, I'm trying to think, there are certain veggies that would actually be burned at those levels. You'd start to see, like, the traditional burn symptoms of necrosis on the on the outer leaf edges. Um, for, you know, legumes, for sure, and, and other sensitive plants. Any questions on that? No, so that that's pretty much it, huh? So overall, it's pretty decent. Um, there's a couple areas that can be improved upon, but yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, pretty much it for the audit yeah, part. Yeah, So the 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 analysis is, you know, there's a lot to it. Um, it totally depends on if it's topsoil or soilless media. The nitrogen concentration totally depends on the soil volume, the cultivar, the species, etc. Um, but ultimately, if I had a magic wand, I would reduce your nitrogen magnesium. I might push up your soluble phosphorus a little bit and your iron. And, um, and from there, things would really just fly. Cool. Now there was one, uh, talking a little bit deeper about nitrogen. There was one, I think it was your Instagram video you made on nitrogen. And I believe it was something along the lines of like 18% of the energy has to do with converting. Can you talk to us yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, what happens in the plant is the plant uptakes either ammonium or nitrate or amino acids, which is an organic form of nitrogen. So there's a third form of nitrogen that the plant can uptake. Um, and again, they, they act totally different depending on what happens. When it comes to nitrate, which is what the vast majority of nitrogen is taken up as, the plant has to convert that nitrogen in the form of nitrate into complete proteins to actually put into its leaves. So nitrogen is sort of the backbone of proteins um, in the plant. And so it actually has to take that NO3 molecule and, and make it into a protein. And that process is metabolically uh, very energy intensive. And so, you know, I've heard, and I heard this in a podcast um, put out by John Kempf. I can't, I haven't been able to validate it in a textbook, um, but that upwards of 18% of the plant's metabolic energy is used to convert nitrate into complete proteins. So, in theory, there's a there's a sort of a, a hack, and that is that if you can feed the plant's amino acids, so. Uh, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. If you can feed them a soluble amino acid that they uptake, they don't have to convert it into proteins. They don't have to spend as much energy because it's already in that building block of an amino acid. And so I really like, um, there's a, there's 
like a soluble, there's a number of soluble organic amino acid products that are in liquid form that you can feed your plants. I like soluble soybean meal. There's like four different brands um, that are probably all manufactured by the same company and just branded differently. But the theory goes that if your plants are uptaking those amino acids, it's saving a bunch of energy that they can put toward shoot growth or flower development or root growth or any number of metabolic activities. So I'm not sure if that actually works. There's no way to actually test that. Um, I do know that plants perform extremely well when you feed them soluble amino acids. Um, but the question is really, do the do the roots uptake it first or do the microbes get it first? Because in, if it goes in the soil and the microbes um, get it first, then they're going to convert it into ammonium and then nitrate and the plant's going to have to convert it back into amino acids. But if the, the plants can uptake it in amino acid form, it's definitely, definitely a superior way to go. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's really good information. I was um, super intrigued when I heard that, you know, amino acids hack I'm hearing more and more about amino acids and how they're beneficial. And I know there are some nutrient companies that are they're using them as kind of like a primary thing for uptake. So um, that's super cool. Yeah. Um, and I'll also mention that they're the most efficient form of foliar for nitrogen. So if you're going to, hmm. if you're going to apply nitrogen foliar, um, you want to, you want it to be an amino acid form. Um, and yeah, they're definitely more expensive. Um, but at the end of the day, almost all of these organic amendments are in protein or amino acid form. And because they're dry and in chunks, if you can imagine soybean meal or any kind of meal, feather meal, blood meal, they're going to get they're, The microbes have to, have to mineralize them. Um, but in a liquid amino form, it's much better. Um, so yeah, they're, they're very popular. Really. If you ferment any organic substance, it's going to end up in amino acid form. Interesting. Let's move on. Let's talk. Uh, let's get a little bit deeper into phosphorus. Can you tell us a little bit about phosphorus? What you know about yeah, that? Yeah, phosphorus is the primary function that I think of is just energy transfer. So, so phosphorus is the you know the primary uh, element in ATP, which is kind of the the energy transfer uh, money in in cells. So all metabolic processes need energy. Phosphorus is the main energy source. Um, you know, phosphorus isn't needed in as high as quanti in as high of quantity as most people think. And actually, if you push nitrogen, traditionally people have pushed nit or I'm sorry, phosphorus way too hard, and that can create major environmental issues, especially outside. So I don't necessarily believe in in really pushing soluble phosphorus in outdoor environments because it really it's leaky. It, it leaves the farm, it leaves the garden, and ends up in ecosystems and really wreaks havoc. So. Um, Phosphorus is super important and there, you definitely need to have a certain concentration of phosphorus in the root system for root growth and for flower development and um, for just reproductive energy in general. But I think it's oftentimes overdone in uh, conventional systems, especially when people are using phosphoric acid or monoammonium phosphate or, you know, triple superphos, but underdone in organic systems, um, so I like to I like to have luxurious levels of phosphorus in organic systems. Yeah, I've heard that in some of these bottled nutrient lines in particular that they way overdo in phosphorus. Uh, that it's just it's an overkill, and then people are adding PK boosters on top of it in flowering, and that's causing problems down the line. Um, mm -hmm. Now, will phosphorus in excess of that will that lock out other nutrients? 
you know, it takes a lot. It takes okay. a lot. I mean, hydroponically, you have to have 100 ppm to start. But, but absolutely, it'll start to antagonize or lock out other nutrients such as zinc, iron. Uh, a lot of the, I mean, it's, a, it's an anion, so it'll lock out any cationic micronutrient, which is zinc, iron, manganese, um, and copper. But really, zinc and iron are the ones to be uh, aware of the most. Okay. Uh, moving on, potassium. Talk to us a little bit about potassium. Yeah, potassium is a fascinating one. Potassium is responsible in the plant for, and by the way, when I when I do this very quick overview of what these things do in the plant, the, these three nutrients, really all the macronutrients are ubiquitous. They have so many roles in the plant that you would have to be a PhD in plant physiology to even understand all the different roles of potassium. So high level stuff, um, I'm saying what they do, maybe one or two things, but they they have their hand in almost every metabolic function. But when I think of potassium, I think of um, the, it's, it's like cell balance. So the opening and closing of stomata and the movement of nutrients through the xylem and the translocation of nutrients and carbohydrates, it's all about potassium because it's, it's, um, it's a very high concentration cation that helps open and close um, cells. So yeah, potassium is very important. It's also as if people who um, are growing for flowering, flowering plants know that um, whether you're trying to size up an apple or a tomato or a medicinal flower, you, you need to have a lot of potassium in the reproductive state. Um, so to me, there's this very interesting relationship that I focus on a lot between calcium and potassium. They're both cations with positive charges and they're both very antagonistic to one another. So I like to really push calcium and veg and try to maximize the plant's uptake of calcium. And then in flower, when you're really trying to fill flower and hit yield and create density, you want to, you want to switch that ratio and really be pushing potassium. Um, so yeah, potassium in the soluble form, there's a number of different organic products. Um, I was about to say potassium silicate. It's actually not considered organic unless you're using it for IPM, but um, I don't have any issue with it whatsoever. But potassium sulfate is what I tend to recommend. Um, and you can really push uh, potassium levels up. I've noticed that it has a bit of a, of a delayed effect. So if you want to size a flower, it's not going to be a 24 hour effect. You should be applying it like weeks in advance of when um, the flowers are really sizing. So uh, the rule of thumb I use is like a lot of growers uh, understand the idea of like the plants stretch, like at the end of stretch, that's when I really hammer down on potassium. Okay. And then, yeah, there are some growers out there that swear by potassium towards the end of flowering. They're just, absolutely. yeah. Um, so, no, I, and I do too. I think that's critically important. The interesting part was there is you said after stretch is really when you want to start to apply it. So when yeah. would you stop applying it? couple weeks before harvest. Okay. I mean, it, it, it totally depends on your, and this is why soil testing is so important. It depends on your soil levels, right? If you go into flower and you're at where you are at two, two thirty, I don't think I'd apply potassium. I think that's great. Um, but in a perfect world, your, your calcium's at 170, your mag's at 35, your potassium's like under a hundred. And then, and then once you enter flower, you got to get that up to over 200. So that's when you're really just got to hammer down on it. Um, so it depends on where your soil's at and it depends on the tissue levels too. 
Um, like if you haven't loaded calcium, then you may not need as much potassium. Um, so it's important to kind of understand that it's, it's hard to give a set recommendation, but in general, in general, um, feeding potassium is going to help. And it's the interesting thing about potassium is it's not going to hurt. So plants like potassium won't lock anything out. It won't antagonize anything because plants, most plants have, um, the ability to, to uptake luxury levels of potassium. So they can just keep uptaking it. They can eat it like candy and just store it in vacuoles or in different cellular constituents and, and not use it. But they like to just uptake it in luxury levels and it's not going to tie anything up. Um, so it's not going to hurt to feed potassium and flour. And I, and I don't have an issue saying that because I don't think it's a major environmental concern outdoors. So if someone's slamming down on a phosphorus during flour, that bothers me. Someone slamming down on potassium excessively, it's it's not that big of a deal. Okay. I did want to touch on one more thing, and that is heavy metals. Um, mm. So I know you did uh, the, the talk with Tad Hussey. You went into detail with heavy metals. I know like on the commercial facility side of things, it's, it's pretty important. I mean, they can fail testing uh, for heavy metals. Now on the home growth side of things, we don't really hear about that much. But can you talk to us about heavy metals in soil and plants? Yeah, so the interesting thing about heavy metals is I think that it's it's a little bit overhyped, but but not overhyped. <laughs> the the issue is if you fail your tests, you have huge economic loss. So the so it's this this high risk, low probability event. And those are the worst. <laughs> um that's that's usually in life where there's a high risk, low probability event, you buy insurance. So like, you know, for a fire or whatever, but you can't buy heavy metal insurance. So the, the goal is you just try to minimize a, a few risk factors that may be co contributing to, to heavy metal failure. The first obviously is genetics, um, you know, plants, medicinal plants are often uh, just natural hyperaccumulators and different, different uh, cultivars have a much higher proclivity to accumulate heavy metals. So, so part of the failure issue is just growers have just certain cultivars that unfortunately accumulate it in high quantities. But beyond that, um, there are certain inputs that bring in heavy metals and, um, it, and there are certain soil conditions, specifically, um, pH and redox, which is like how saturated your soil is. Um, that will influence the uptake of heavy metals. So usually heavy metals are coming in through a bad compost source. So oftentimes historically biosolids have a lot of high, so compost made from biosolids, which is like municipal sewage sludge, um, have a lot of heavy metals, which sounds disgusting, but it's interesting. The stuff performs super well. I've used it. It's, it performs extremely well, but it often has higher heavy metals. Um, inputs like kelp meal, which is such a staple in the organic program for most growers can have, it pretty much always has elevated arsenic. So a little bit, a little bit is fine, but if you're applying huge amounts of kelp meal, you, you could start seeing failures. Um, again, depending on the cultivar, soft rock phosphate and rock dust, which are mined products often have elevated heavy metals. It's kind of brand specific for my research. So you just want to make sure you're sourcing the right amendments. Um, I help growers source amendments that have been screened and they have the, the lowest levels of heavy metals if they're going to get tested. Um, 
And then it kind of depends on the state, right? Because some states don't test, some do, and some tests, the, the levels can be really rigorous. Some states test for barium, some don't. Um, so it, it's kind of, again, context specific. Then the final thing is just foliars. Most, most people avoid foliar applying their um, final product, whether that's a vegetable, a melon, or a flower. And um, so if you're foliar applying kelp meal on your flowers, you're gonna, you have a hundred times higher likelihood of failing than if you aren't. So you just wanna be very conscious of foliars. And then all the branded nutrients, just any org certified organic product has to get tested. They have to meet certain, I would say fairly rigorous standards for heavy metals. And so I'm, I have the heavy metal levels of all organic products um, at my disposal. And so I can actually just look if a product's not certified organic and it's from some bottled nutrient company, you have no idea. And so if you're really trying to minimize that risk, you really need to either have those products tested. Um, or I would say demand from the manufacturer that you get test results, um, or you need to eliminate them. And so what I do is I help growers use the raw mineral ingredients and put together customized fertility programs so they can get off bottled nutrients. I'm not saying, I mean, I have bottled nutrients in my shed right now, just because if I need to do a quick fix, I can just slam it with something quick. Um, but ultimately I'd say that's a big question mark in commercial operations in terms of figuring out where heavy metals are coming from. Final thing I'll mention is that Logan labs does heavy metal testing. They do all the EPA 503 heavy metals. So for 150 bucks, you can test your soil and actually see what the heavy metal levels are in addition to the nutrient analysis. Um, so those are my thoughts. I have more thoughts that get more technical, but honestly, I don't think it's that it's, it's too theoretical. Like I understand when cadmium becomes available, but I don't think it's a relevant conversation to the home grower or even to the commercial grower because certain things just are out of the, out of control of a grower. Like you're not going to change the redox state of your soil. It's just not realistic. Gotcha. Gotcha. Really good stuff there for sure. So wrapping things up, how can the listeners find you? And is there anything special you got upcoming in the future that you want to talk about? Um, I've got a, I've got a, a number of things in the works that I can't wait to launch. I'm not talking about them yet. Um, but there's some really exciting things that I'm going to launch in the next year. And I'd say the best way to follow me is on Instagram, um, soil underscore doctor. I haven't posted for a while because the busy season just sweeps me away. I'm starting an orchard. I'm helping hundreds of growers. I'm not producing content, but I will be as things slow down. So follow me on Instagram. Um, you can order soil audits, um, consulting phone calls, anything you want on my website, which is soildoctorconsulting.com. Awesome. I will leave a link to Bryant's Instagram and website down in the description section below. Uh, if you enjoyed this video, please click that thumbs up button. That helps tremendously. It helps uh, with ranking. It helps show up on people's recommended feeds, so on and so forth. If you're new to the channel, subscribe. That way you can be notified uh, when new episodes are released. I release every single weekend, so either Saturday or Sunday. Usually it's Saturday, but if Susan over at YouTube decides that she needs to manually review a video, It'll come out on Sunday instead. So, Also, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. That helps out a ton. We're just about to reach 100 ratings and reviews. So thank you so much to everyone who has left that so far. And lastly, uh, sharing. That's probably one of the biggest things you can do is share this podcast. Uh, Reddit is a good place to share. Facebook groups is a good place to share. So 
thank you to everyone who decides to share this podcast. Brian, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. I have learned so much, and uh, there's a, really a lot of knowledge here that I think is going to help out the audience. So thank you so much, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me on.